0: Greetings to all of our partners in the struggle, and welcome to the Avant-Guardian podcast. My name is Devin Jerome Crawford, staff director of the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice at the Harvard Kennedy School, and our host and faculty director is Professor Cornell William Brooks. Today, we will engage in an urgent conversation on the intersection of COVID-19 and mass incarceration, with a particular focus on Mr. Anthony Swain, Jr. Today we are joined by his parents, Mr. Anthony Swain Sr. and Mrs. Connie Swain, who continue to relentlessly advocate for Anthony's freedom and liberation five years later. In the last year, Mr. and Mrs. Swain began working with the Dream Defenders to raise funds necessary to release Anthony from pretrial detention. Along with pursuing justice for their son, the Swains have advocated for legal punishment reform for years. Attorney Maya Ragsdale, who works at the Dream Defenders in Miami, Florida, where she is a community lawyer. She is a former public defender who now works with nonprofit groups trying to post bail and secure release for pretrial defendants. And our host is Professor Cornell William Brooks, who is the Hauser Professor of the Practice of Nonprofit Organizations and Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership and Social Justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is also the director of the William Monroe-Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice at the school's Center for Public Leadership and visiting professor of the practice of prophetic religion and public leadership at Harvard Divinity School. Professor Brooks is the former president and CEO of the NAACP, a civil rights attorney, and an ordained minister. Due to some technical challenges, you may notice a slight echo, but the conversation is definitely worth it. We invite all of you who are listening to this broadcast to follow the Trotter Collaborative at harvard.trotter.edu our social media website or platforms at Harvard underscore Trotter, as well as follow our podcast, rate and subscribe it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcast. We now invite Professor Brooks to lead us in this conversation. Professor Brooks.
1: Thank you, Devin. I'm so um, honored and delighted to have this opportunity to be in conversation with Swains and with Attorney Ragsdale on one of the most critical issues facing our democracy in this moment. I mean, we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic of mass incarceration, where we have 2.2 million Americans behind bars, over 4 million under supervision of the criminal legal system. This mass incarceration occurs alongside a pandemic of COVID-19. That is to say, where there are 400,000 fatalities and the pandemic yet rages, we have our brothers and sisters, people like us, behind bars in America's prisons and jails. So I'm delighted to have this conversation, the Swains, in a moment in which their story represents a family portrait, if you will, of COVID-19, mass incarceration, and the troubles of our debtors, prisons, and jails in terms of the uh, cash bail system. So with that said, I want to welcome the Swains to this uh, podcast and just say how delighted we are to have you here and to have you willing to share your story with the viewers and listeners of the Avant Guardian podcast. First of all, I just want to ask you, as a couple that have been married for almost 50 years, uh, you have uh, children whom you're proud of and whom you love. Had your son, Anthony Swain Jr., uh, who was incarcerated, better part over four years. Can you tell me about how you felt about his incarceration and then how you felt about him being incarcerated in the midst of a pandemic?
2: I felt personally damaged, broken, uh, mm-hmm. despair. there was no direction that we can go in to get justice for our son even though we felt and still feel mm-hmm. as though that it was not proper not justified for what was done because if it was they would have had a course a court hearing by now but mm-hmm. almost five years later they're still trying to build a case after mm-hmm. five years we felt empty we felt disparited. we felt hurt bruised but that didn't stop our mission work in the field, it didn't stop us from giving, from doing, but mm. we increased it uh, tremendously. Mm. So. Mrs. Swain, how did you feel? I was very
3: stressed behind the entire situation. First of all, Anthony is a paraplegic mm. and he's been paralyzed from the waist down since age 20. He was shot in the back. Mm. Um, when he was incarcerated, he had medical issues already. And uh, during the incarceration, a lot of his medical issues were not addressed. Mm. And it was a very, very stressful situation for me because of the medical issues. Anthony actually has, when he was initially incarcerated, he went in with a dislocated shoulder, Mm -hmm. a dislocated hip, the femur on the other leg and part of the hip had been mm. removed. And mm. he had a, another problem with the other shoulder. Plus mm. he had a cyst on his wrist. Mm. He was in a wheelchair that he had to manipulate for himself. When he got to prison, there was no shower bench. So he was showering in his wheelchair Uh, This is a custom-made wheelchair built directly for his personal needs, especially with the part part of the femur and the hip being removed. And um, there seemed to be no compassion. When I say no compassion, I don't mean that he should be treated differently, and yet he should be treated differently because he's a disabled American. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were suffered with almost the entire first year of incarceration was the fact that he was given one catheter to use, and that one catheter that he was given lasted him almost eight months. When we went to court to uh, talk about some of the medical issues and everything, the judge said to us, I don't think there's anything wrong with him. They asked the correctional system if they were able to take care of Anthony and the correctional lawyer as well as the medical head medical doctor said yes and in the eight months that he had already been incarcerated he said the head medical doctor never even treated him so I'm wondering how are they saying things like this
1: like what what you're wondering what's the basis of their uh, their testimony they're right absolutely offered to the court Mm-hmm.
3: And um, they, for the most part, they were able to prove. Ask him, did he had he examined him? And he said no. They were insisting that Anthony was self medicated, didn't need the kind of medication they were giving him, and uh, uh, that he was taking so uh, or was requesting more or less. And we had all kind of issues that were going from one thing to the next.
1: And and so. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Swain, just just to be clear, his medical condition, namely being paralyzed um, since 50 plus percent of his body, uh, a catheter is something that is required to be clean, sanitary, It is not the custom or practice to use the same catheter over and over again. In other words, this is the kind of thing you use uh,
3: a couple of weeks. That's right. Get rid of it or replaced, But that was not the case with him. Mm -hmm. Um, When the issue got so grand in there in the court that day until she wanted to know. Judge Miranda. She wanted the judge wanted to know exactly what it was. So that why did he have to have such a special catheter? So he Mm -hmm. told he explained to her, that's just like you asking uh, that's just like me asking you what kind of feminine hygiene items you wear or what size you need. Mm, So at that mm. point she backed off. Mm, When she mm. backed off, she told them to get him what he needed. Mm. It still took a long time before they even got the catheters. And in the meantime, because of the way he was being treated, he started to have any number of urinary tract infections, bleeding from the penis, all kind of stuff was going on. He he had a slip and fall in the shower and he was scalded. And in the process of this slip and fall, he hurt his wrist.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: he repeatedly went back and forth to corrections, telling them that there was a problem with his wrist and they wouldn't do anything about the wrist. And all and- of this occurred in 2017. Right. By so
1: 20- before, before the pandemic, just to just to be clear, before the pandemic, before COVID-19, Anthony Swain Jr. was in a medically fragile.
2: Very much so.
1: Meaning paralyzed, having been, having to use a catheter, uh, not having a- access to these in a safe and sanitary way. So before the pandemic, he was in a medically fragile position. We know from the studies that in the early months of the pandemic, the rate of infection within jails and prisons literally doubled. We have the pandemic spreading across the country in our jails, in prisons, but a little bit about what are the conditions like for a person with COVID or afraid of getting COVID behind bars? What are those conditions like? In other words, we're, we're, we've been told by the, by the Center for uh, for disease control by the CDC, to wash our hands, to have maintain uh, social distance of at least six feet, wear mask.
2: For a person in the Metro West um, facility, it was it was a atmosphere that was created out of the movies. There was no social distancing. There was no mask. There was there wasn't anything that he could use other than the socks off his feet to cover his nose to cover his mouth and Mm -hmm. the things that he depended on. And and when you say
1: to cover his mouth with the socks from his feet, when I wear a mask, there are straps that go around the ears to hold the mask in place. When he put, when he used his socks as a mask, how did he hold it in place? What did he use?
2: Anthony was very creative under the circumstances that was given. And we we all know that we are a very creative group of people. And Mm -hmm. what he did, he would either use the rubber band off of his uh, drawers or some type of uh, string that he had concocted together to tie it around his whole head as opposed to just around his ears. Because you're not in an environment where the sanitary uh, condition is great or even good because you got security there that don't care anything about you. You may Mm -hmm. find one that's concerned, but the inmates were the ones that did more, more help to Anthony than any of the other people that was involved. Mm-hmm. With, with that in mind, he created it, especially when the pandemic was on the rise. Uh, mm-hmm. People right next door to him in a bunk right next to him was coughing and dying in mm-hmm. his presence. And mm-hmm. this is what they call sanitary or social distancing. None of that took place, and it's not taking place now. There, and, uh, and, and I just want to ask, so
1: given that your son wasn't able to maintain social distance, that social distancing, that uh, th- th- there wasn't like hand sanitizer in every cell. He's used a made up mask, not an N95, not anything that the CDC would ever approve. Uh, what did you do in response to that? How did you advocate on behalf of your son?
2: Well, we, were, we approached the lawyer on several different occasions. We mm-hmm. had paid one lawyer a, a substantial amount over $50,000 mm-hmm. and he backed off the case even before presenting the cases so we had to get another lawyer and pay him a same amount to get into uh, uh even address our grievances and with that so in $100,000 off the bat off and the, and you all
1: are you all are middle class people i'm assuming yes. you're not rich so $100,000 for two lawyers who weren't able to help you? So tell me more about your advocacy.
2: Well, the the my wife retired from a school board after having served thirty seven years of mm-hmm. uh, employment. I retired as an engineer after serving forty years as an engineer. But there was some. I just retired in twenty fifteen. This happened almost immediately after retirement, and mm-hmm. all of the things that we had saved and had planned to do was geared toward the the the, the our son being. C- uh, getting released from uh, in being incarcerated. Everything mm-hmm. that we had poured into our future was emptied into his future, you see. Mm-hmm. So this is where we were. As far as the pandemic was concerned, in that realm of things, it was a double portion. We are people of faith. We believe in God. We we prayed. We, we've increased it, and we have a trust in him. And a lot of the things that came about came about through prayer. Maya is number one. Like I said mm. earlier, um, she is a beautiful young lady with wings. She can't see her wings now, but I see them. She came in and helped us tremendously. She mentioned things that I had no knowledge about uh, wow. in regard to our son. And when she said something about the program, I said, well, Go let, fund me. Me. yeah, the GoFundMe, I had no idea what it was at that time.
1: And so so this new attorney whom we're going to talk to, and we're going to come back to hear more about your story, um, Maya Ragsdale, who is a graduate of the Harvard Law School, a community lawyer who was recently recognized as an activist uh, of the year. Uh, We're going to turn to her, Attorney Ragsdale, for a moment before going back to speaking to Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Swain, who've, who've done so much in terms of advocacy, not only for um, for their son, um, but also for so many others. And so we're going to come back to your story in just a moment. So, Attorney Ragsdale, so delighted to have you as a part of the Avant-Guardian uh, podcast. And if I could just ask you, the, the Swains have gone through two lawyers uh, trying to secure this, not only their son's liberty and life, uh, I should say son's liberty, but literally his life. So you come to this case, to these folks, and, and, and you know I'm a, I'm a minister, if I can say, praying people who've described you as a, uh, a beautiful young lady with wings. I mean, it, it is seldom that lawyers are described this way, right? <laughs> so uh, I've been practicing, I've, I've been a, a lawyer for many years. I've never been described as a, as a person with wings. So, uh, Attorney Ragsdale, as an attorney with wings, I want to know how did you come? How did you come to, the, to this case? How did you hear about it?
4: So I heard about the Swains, and I heard about Anthony specifically because mm-hmm. I had a number of people who I knew who were inside of the jail system, mm-hmm. and people continually told me there's a man who is in a medical unit who you need to talk to. People inside of the system kept telling me you need to talk to this person. And so, you know, I I remember at that time I was getting so many calls. I would say I was getting maybe 50, 60 calls a day from the jail. And I remember it was really hard to answer the calls because I would be on the phone and then there'd be another one coming in and I can never see who it is. And finally, I was able to talk to Anthony Um, And I remember, I think our first conversation was probably about two hours um, Mm. with him just describing everything that he had endured during the time that he was incarcerated at Metro West in the county, also in the county north of us called Broward County in just, you know, TGK. That's another jail in Miami. Um, Just the kind of like the just the absolute lack of concern and care that he received when he was, went, went, during the time that he was incarcerated.
1: And so you're, you're getting these uh, calls by the score daily from uh, the jails. Uh, these are people who are legally and presumptively uh, innocent uh, who are uh, waiting uh, a trial, uh, being detained, having their liberty circumscribed and they're calling you because the conditions in the jail are not, are not safe. Um, and as we can tell from what the Swains have described, uh, they weren't safe, medically speaking, before COVID. And so what was, as an attorney, what was your response to uh, Anthony Swain's case? I mean, what was your theory in terms of what you should do next as a matter of law? And since you've been described as an activist, as an activist.
4: For the context, um, mm-hmm. I do whatever i can to get whoever it is that i talk to out of the jail system so i see my law degree as one tool in order to do that but there's obviously a whole number of different things that 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 are in um and the arsenal of an advocate and so you know i was working with dream defenders which is an organization of people who are young who are not lawyers um who are trained in community organizing. And so the first thing that we did is that that the Dream, Defiders, Dream Defenders kind of activist side of the, the campaign started making demands on the jail system um, saying, you need to release people. These jails are overcrowded. Most of the people who are incarcerated should never have even been there in the first place. A bunch of people can't afford bond. A bunch of people are there on probation violations that need to be released. This is an absolutely you know, ridiculous situation that we've always been in. And then during this time of COVID, um, it is essential that people are released immediately. Mm. At the same time as that, um, we decided to also use a legal, a legal approach. And so we partnered with um, Civil Rights Corps, Advancement Project and Community Justice Project, which are all civil rights organizations to file a lawsuit against Metro West knowing that filing a lawsuit would increase the pressure on the jail system um, to both address the conditions inside of the jail as well as to release people from the system.
1: And so just to, just to be clear, so as a lawyer, as an activist working with the Swains who are advocates on behalf of their son, and advocates on behalf of, of people caught up in the system of mass incarceration, you use a legal strategy challenging the medical conditions uh, in the in the jails on presumably constitutional and statutory grounds, but you do so with the understanding that it has activist implications. It gets the case more visibility. It motivates, inspires, ignites uh, the community uh, to come together around. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, that's exactly what we what the hope was. Um, as a result of filing the lawsuit, um, there were suddenly articles about the jail system, about the fact that, you know, people were basically piled on top of each other, 60 people to a cell, sometimes up to 70, 75 people to a cell. Um, there was just, there was actually attention to this jail system for one of the first times that I think I can think of. Um, we have a jail director who's considered to be a progressive. Um, He works very closely with the county commissioners, with everybody kind of like in this, who's involved in the system, and he's considered to be this person who's a humane jailer. Um, And so this was one of the first times in a kind of widespread way that he was getting a lot of negative attention. And it was also, this case was also being used by um, the court system, by some of the better judges in the system to release people. They were saying, attorneys started, defense attorneys started contacting me and asking about this case. Can you please send us like, you know, a list of the conditions that we can use in our own advocacy for our for our clients. So there were so many different ways that this case um, ended up in so many different, uh, I guess, areas of the Miami-Dade community and being used in so many ways.
1: And attorney there, would it be fair to say in, in some ways that Anthony Swain Jr., with almost like a, a Rosa Parks for pretrial detainees in the sense of here he is someone with a with a profound medical condition who's a medically fragile condition uh, who is put legally and presumptively innocent right <laughs> he has not been convicted of anything yes. and as we know 70 close to three out of four 74 percent of the people are are haven't been convicted uh, who was sitting in jails. So is I'm asking you, is his case in some ways a, a snapshot, a picture, an image of the whole matter of the problem with the cash bail system? Like why are, all these people, you know, why are all these people sitting behind bars who are not convicted?
4: Absolutely. I would say his case is reflective of not just the cash bail system, but of the pretrial mm-hmm. detention system kind of more generally. A huge number of people are sitting in Miami jails for probation violations on technical little, you know, they didn't, they dropped dirty during a drug test, or they missed a, a violation of probation. Um, you know, there's just so many different. So when
1: you say that. drop dirty, meaning uh, you 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 smoke um, ma- marijuana, you fail a drug test. Half the students at Harvard, not half, but the great great number of students at, at Harvard and universities elsewhere who smoke marijuana who might fail the drug test. But this does not uh, mean that they spend uh, months on end in in jail.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I think that every single plaintiff who was on this lawsuit was there pretrial. You know, there's so many, there's thousands of people who are sitting in jail in Miami for years and years. There's somebody who I talked to who's at one of the jails in Miami who's been incarcerated for 15 years waiting for trial. And so Mm -hmm. this is a problem that is widespread. It's a problem that's not just in Miami. It's a problem that we see throughout the country. Um, and you know, Anthony is such a strong person with so much wisdom and with so much um to share with the world. And I think that the way that he advocated for himself during this case, both in terms of his involvement in the lawsuit as well as his involvement in the media, in terms in as well as all of these different kinds of ways that he participated in yeah. this in this case and still yeah. continues participate in the work that we do, you know, I think that he like he has such a powerful voice that um, has added to this conversation around pretrial detention.
1: So, Attorney Ragsdale, I'm going to turn to the uh, Swains and and to you. And if I can ask you all to tell me a little bit more about uh, Anthony Swain as a person, right? So, in other words, he's more than a pretrial detainee. Former pretrial detainee. He's more than someone who is awaiting um, trial on criminal charges. He's also an advocate. And in, in 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 many ways, he's brought the three of you together and many people together around this issue. So if I can turn to the Swains, could you just tell me a little bit about your son, like his personality, his character, who
2: he is. How did he get to be who he is? You know, um- you mentioned the fact that you were a minister and I was praying that you asked that question because mm. there was something that, um, I had eight sisters. I have three daughters and mm. I, prior to Anthony being born, my wife was pregnant and I was desperate for a son. And so <laughs> I turned to, to put my back to the wall. I said, Lord, this is a one-on-one conversation. Lord, if you bless me with a son, I'll give him back to you. Mm-hmm. Anthony is that son. Mm-hmm. Ever since he was born, the devil been trying to take him out. The guy that shot him in his back, he stood over and said, "Negro, out of finish killing you now." And but he didn't use that terminology. Yeah. Stood over Anthony, pulled the trigger, click, click. But he held the gun up and shot at a crowd. Ow. Mm-hmm. This young man right now, his son is playing football where I am a chaplain of that team right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to take a lot and forgive him. It's not Mm -hmm. that I don't think about it, but I had to forgive him because I want to go higher in Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anthony has been a bright young man, even after he was shot by this young man that he had taken in and fed and gave clothes to in college. Um, he, uh, went back to Emoryville after they took the bullet out of his back here in, in Miami and graduated. When he graduated, they had no handicap facilities at Emeryville Aeronautical University. They had they had to lift him on the stage with a tractor and a mm-hmm. forklift. And when they lift him on the stage, I saw tears coming out of the eyes of all of the professors because they thought that he wasn't going to complete college. He completed college in 2001, graduated mm-hmm. with with an average 2.5 plus GPA at Mm -hmm. that time. Anthony Mm -hmm. is extremely bright. I was Mm -hmm. telling Maya the other day that my wife and I, some time ago was when he was smaller, maybe nine or 10, uh, even younger. We were going off and we left them home here, uh, my wife and I. Much younger. About seven is about four to five. Okay, Okay, we'll go with that age, four or five years old. And what happened was um, he had talked to his sister, Marse, about asking us because he was shy and wouldn't talk to us in the manner of his sister would, Marse. And he wanted a bicycle. And Marse came to the car that we were getting ready to drive off and said, Daddy, Aunt said he wanted a bicycle for Christmas. I said, Marseille, if Aunt can fix that bicycle in the back, I said, we'll buy him a bicycle. The bicycle, the tires was was tight was squeaking, the chain was broken and tight, Mm. and you needed some sort of oil or something to lubricate it. The spokes was here and there. And when we left and came back, the kid was riding the bicycle up and down the street. (laughs) I said, Connie looked at me and laughed. she said, I guess you gotta buy him a bicycle. I went straight to, to Sears, Walmart wasn't open at that time, and bought him a bicycle. But he has always been adventurous, a bright young man, knew how to conduct himself in situations of this nature. And we, I would go to Jacksonville. I left one of the apartments that, because of what the, 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 the people did to him, lost the house. The house is worth over a million dollars now. I had him and his brother to do some work on that house, when I went to Jacksonville to come back. And when I came back the everything was complete, everything mm-hmm. that I had asked him to do. He was just that type of young man, smart, intelligent, bright, and honest, integrity. Determined. Yes, mm-hmm. very determined.
1: Now, I, 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 would, I would be fired from this podcast if I, if I asked only dad, but without asking mom, uh, how yeah. her son? Uh, so I'm going to do that. Okay. <laughs> well,
3: as the dad has already described, he's uh, very bright, highly intelligent, yeah. and mm-hmm. he has a level of compassion for people. And anything that he could do to help somebody, he's done. While he was incarcerated, he was busy trying to teach them how to file their grievances, how to document their grievances, whatever. And he told them, he said, I don't care if if they miss giving you your cookie for the day, you're supposed to write that down on the grievance. If they miss doing this for you today, it's supposed to be documented. Anything that they do to you, has to be documented, or mm. failed to do for you needs to be documented, and he would be in there teaching the people how to write the grievances, and they would the, the administ- administrative part of the facility would be so upset until they would just ask him to stop him to stop filing grievances for himself, where they would have such a backlog of them. Wow. And one of the things that we have always tried to instill in in him as well as all of our other children is a level of independence and knowing how to do things for yourself. And he found people that could not read. He was busy reading and trying to tell them what was being said and done about them on their court uh, things and everything. And he was just a a big help to those people that were incarcerated. One of the things that we did not talk about Mm-hmm. not changing the subject intentionally, was the mm-hmm. fact that when he was incarcerated, they had him right next door to the COVID ward. Mm-hmm. And in other words, anybody that went into this ward had to pass by him. Anybody mm-hmm. that came out of the ward had to pass by him. And for the length of time that COVID existed, And he didn't get it until those final days. We know truly that God was still on the throne.
1: Wow. And as I understand it, his his cell was next door to this COVID ward, but the air conditioning system was such that the air blows across. Right. As opposed to down or up. And I want to turn to Attorney Ragsdale because ultimately Anthony Swain Jr. As being the advocate that he was, having the parents that he does have, you were able to secure his release. How so? Tell me about that. How did that happen?
4: It was a process. Um, the first thing that we tried to do was ask the judge to release him just through the lawsuit as a member, as a plaintiff, as one of the people who was leading the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. That didn't work. Um, then we asked, we filed a specific motion asking the judge to release him once he got COVID and ended up at the hospital.
1: And and on what grounds?
4: Um, the grounds were basically, it was like, it was a habeas petition. So Mm -hmm. the grounds were that, you know, that he specifically is being injured, um, that this is an urgent situation that he needs to be released.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Um, the judge declined to rule on that. Um, she said that because his state court judge, so we filed a lawsuit in federal court, she said because his state court judge hadn't yet ruled on his motion to release, she was going to defer to the state court judge, wait to see what happened, knowing full and well that the state court judge was never going to make a decision on that motion because there was no, no pressure for her to do so. so. That was the next thing we tried. Um, when that decision came out, then we decided that uh, maybe we should try a multi-pronged strategy that had nothing to do with the law. And so we thought we basically created a petition by we, I mean um, my organization with Anthony's attorney, with criminal defense attorney, with the Swains and with um, my organization, like I said, Dream Defenders.
0: Dream Defenders. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah. So we created a petition that ended up getting, I think it was close to 60,000 signatures um, asking for his release. We found an influencer, kind of a former public defender, actually, who has a massive media presence um, to take up this case and start advocating for him. And so Color of Change got involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, MSNBC, he was on his case was on MSNBC. We wrote an article in Newsweek. Um, We there was something that came out in Washington Post. Like it was just one thing after another, after another. And then even the local media started picking it up Um, still at the still the state court judge. And then we presented all this to the state court judge. The state court judge uh, refused to release him. The prosecutors refused to budge on on his bond price. And so finally, the next thing that we did, you know, I approached Mr. Swain at a protest that they had come to um, and we I proposed, let's do a GoFundMe. This is the only other way that we can get him out. Nobody's willing to release him. Nobody's willing to lower his bond. So all we can do is just pay the bond. And so again, you know, using uh, really, it was Twitter. This this has made me realize the power of Twitter, to be honest. Um, but using Twitter we were able to get um, a massive massive support from all over the country. I think there were close to 2,000 donations. So many of them were 10, 15, 20 dollars. Um, and we got all the way up to $65,000. And then one of Anthony's family members reached out to Colin Kaepernick. Um, I ended up speaking to somebody who works under him and Colin Kaepernick donated $15,000 out of his own pocket to top off the account. And even after that, even after we raised the bond money, we still couldn't get him out. So even after we raised the bond money, he had another whole process that's called a Nebbia hold. You have to prove the source of your funds in order to get somebody out. So that is difficult when you've raised money through anonymous donations on GoFundMe. And so that whole process took another, I would say, I would say another like, you know, two to three weeks. Then we had to find a bondsman who was willing to secure the bond with um, you know, for this amount of bond there's So meanwhile
1: we have we have all manner of charities and charitable causes using GoFundMe. But you have to go to court and prove the source of the funds for GoFundMe for, for a charitable cause. After having made your case on Twitter, after having made your case on MSNBC and Newsweek and Washington Post, uh, I'm, I'm simply recounting all of the steps that you've taken. That demonstrates the degree to which um, people who are caught up in the, in the criminal justice system, criminal legal system, criminal punishment system, um, what you know for those for those. For those defendants who don't have a Anthony and Connie Swain as mother and father, for those whose criminal defendants who do not have a Colin Kaepernick as a donor or an attorney Ragsdale as an attorney, what do they do?
4: They, they remain incarcerated, they accept a plea, and they go to prison. That's what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. And them- and so how, 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 did this, how did this play out? So how, did, how were you able to secure his release?
4: So finally, um, you know, we submitted a whole bunch of, we actually got a download of all of the donations from GoFundMe, we attached that along with um, declarations um, from declarations, I had to do a sworn declaration saying, this is where the source of the funds are, this is a normal way to raise money, Um, all of this type of stuff. And then he had, then his attorney had to present all of this information to the judge And then even then, the judge didn't just release him. What she did was that she attached an additional condition onto him that was not originally part of his bond. So she attached house arrest total lockdown, meaning that he, when he was released, he's not even allowed to leave his house without specific permission from the, from the, um, you know, from his house arrest officer. This is somebody who's in a wheelchair. This is somebody who is an honest person, a person who has not been convicted of any crime. And, and she still wouldn't just release him once we had raised all the bond amount, all the bond money.
1: And for, you know, for our viewers and listeners, this is extraordinary sacrificial advocacy um, by uh, Anthony and Connie Swain and attorney Ragsdale. This is not normal advocacy, normal lawyering. This is e- e- extraordinary. You're having to prove the source of the funds is a little like asking your priest, your rabbi, your minister to prove every penny that went into the collection plate. This is not normal. So last, last question here, Attorney Waxale, which is you, you secure his release, but there's so many more who left behind bars. He's essentially incarcerated in his own home, if you will. Um, what about the fact that we have, a, we have Anthony Fauci, the new uh, advisor to President Biden on COVID-19, and the CDC and so many, uh, so many in the medical establishment, essentially saying, since those in secure facilities in confined settings uh, are exposed to the, to the coronavirus more, and they have a higher risk of spreading it among themselves, but also in the community, that they should receive the vaccine. So, what happens to those who are behind bars? My understanding is that Florida doesn't have a plan for vaccinating those behind bars where Anthony was?
4: I would love for the Swains to speak to this a little bit as well. Um, My sense from talking to a lot of people who are locked up and their family members is that corrections officers have come around the jails and the prisons in Florida and in Miami specifically um, and asked people if they want to sign up for the virus and because of the incredible amount of medical neglect, the incredible amount of medical abuse, and the and the fact that that um, doctors in the system I've repeatedly heard administer um, shots that people don't know what they are, people are refusing to be vaccinated.
1: Mm. We're going to turn to the Ragsdales and, excuse me, turn to uh, the Swains and you for some final reflections. Um, but I, I, I want to simply note this. Perhaps this was a 40 Fordian slip. You said the corrections officials go to the inmates and ask them to sign up, not for the vaccine, but you said sign up um, for, um, for the virus. <laughs> and, Maybe what you said, as a matter of uh, a Freudian slip, a word choice, reflects how people in the jails and prisons feel about this vaccine, meaning this distrust. So, you know, turning to uh, the Swains, I, I simply want to ask you: Going forward, we're we're still in the middle of this pandemic. We're looking at possibly a half million uh, deaths. We have millions of people caught up in the criminal justice system. What do you say in terms of how do we advocate for the vaccine for people who need it, who are vulnerable behind bars? And what do you say to the country, certainly the state of Florida, about how we get people out of jail and from behind bars who shouldn't be there at all? What do you say?
2: This is something prior to a- answering that question, let me go back uh, a second. Uh, Maya mentioned the fact that um, um, Anthony was in, is under house arrest. Yes. he is under house arrest and can't go here, can't go there. His wife of mm-hmm. so many years is in the house arrest, but she has separated them.
4: Mm-hmm. the judge
2: the judge has intentionally separated them. They haven't been together now for over five years. And they're, that's husband and wife. She intentionally separated them and they both are out under house arrest. Now, mm-hmm. answering that question, there in 1968, I graduated from high school. <clears throat> and at, during that time, there were uh, 13 black men that was injected with syphilis in yes. my hometown. And uh, 12 of them died. And uh, the one that lived sued the company for over a million dollars. Ebony magazine had put the whole article out, and the black man that they had experimented on for so many years, he said, "All I want is to be left alone." That stigma, that approach to black lives, have been the same up to now. They are still experimenting on us. We are just began to be considered as human beings. Even in the war, Vietnam War, they were saying things about the black men. But yet Mm -hmm. and still, we had to constantly prove ourselves to them. uh, The James Brown with the hair process, or or Tiny Tim and all those other things, the comedians and performers. Mm -hmm. But there is that, just like you said earlier, a lack of trust in this whole democracy in regard to the COVID-19, the testing, and the administration of this drug they won't do it. We've, got,
1: we've got to overcome the trust the legacy the ugly legacy of the tuskegee uh, experiment and miss swain what what do you say in terms of vaccinations and the whole challenge of pre-trial detention uh, being caught behind um by in the criminal justice system for the most
3: part i look at just starting uh with PPEs, sanitation, things like this. And if we can't get the basic that is not costing us hundreds of millions of dollars to produce, if we can't get them to clean the jails, provide the uh, people with uh, whatever they need in terms of soap, hand sanitizers, gloves, uh, cleanliness, period, how can we get them to trust that you're going to do the right thing with whatever vaccinations or medicine that you plan on giving them? You can't.
1: So there's a a relationship between ensuring that uh, criminal defendants, criminal defendants have the medical minimum and the trust that it takes for them to be willing to take uh, a vaccine. And then of course, prioritizing people behind bars to receive the vaccine. Because if Florida doesn't have um, that as a part of a a plan as do many many jurisdictions, um, even if you get them to prioritize the prisons, you got to get the prisoners to actually be willing to take the vaccine. And of course their willingness to take the vaccine has everything to do with what you described being the prisons and jails providing the PPE, the medical minimum to ensure that their humanity is respected and safeguarded and protected. Attorney Ragsdale, um, this as as a public interest attorney, as an activist, and as an advocate who has used a wide range of tools. You've used social media, you've used traditional media, community organizing, working with groups like the Dream Defenders, the Advancement Project, and, and Color of Change. Going forward, what would be your strategy for, in, in the middle of this pandemic, getting those behind bars uh, a vaccine uh, going beyond the pandemic, ensuring that those behind bars, that there are many fewer of them behind bars who are trapped in our, our jails and, and secure facilities? If you could speak to that as an advocate, as an activist, uh, as an attorney.
4: We're in a tough situation um, in Miami. Um, The jail population is higher now than it was before COVID. There seems to be no attention that the courts are giving to COVID inside of the jails anymore. When I talk to defense attorneys, they're surprised that people who are incarcerated are still getting COVID. Um, And so I feel that without again, attention being brought to the fact that this still continues, that people are still getting sick, that people are still being hospitalized, that this is still a widespread issue inside of the system, that um, that there's, there's just not going to be attention. I, I just don't think that it's going to result in releases. One thing that I've been trying to do is work with um, family members of people who are locked up to help them kind of use a model called Participatory defense in order to be able to intervene in their Mm -hmm. loved ones' criminal cases. So, to be able to advocate for their loved ones who have lawyers who don't respond to them for six months at a time. Um, so that they can start gathering the evidence that they need for their love to, to defend their loved ones so that they can gather the community resources and to support, to tell a judge, this person needs to come home. And when they come home, they have this support in the community. And this is who they, this is who they are as a person. There's somebody who's loved. And so I've been trying to, th- I've been trying to use different kind of modes of advocacy, just mm. get the situation that we currently have, um, which again is a jail population that is now a thousand people higher than it was at the height of coronavirus, um, which I would have said, I said, I guess would say would have been in June. Um, And, you know, just conditions where people are constantly being moved around. The jail is very overcrowded. People are on top of each other. Um, I've just been trying to do whatever I can in in as many ways as I can.
1: Well, I I have a, a final question speaks to the work that you've done and the work that yet lies before us. You've been able to mobilize tens of thousands of people, probably millions of people in terms of those who've heard about uh, Anthony Swain Jr. To participate, as you put it, participatory defense, yes, in the legal system, but participatory defense in our democratic society. You've been able to literally motivate and inspire and ignite change on behalf of Anthony Swain Jr. The question I want, which should give us sense, some sense of hope, meaning our hope lies not so much in judges and the court system per se and by itself, but in the people uh, standing behind the people who are caught up in that system. So, if I can ask you and the Swains to speak to how can we help you with anth- with the, the case of Anthony Swain Jr., with the cases of so many who are caught up in this criminal pus- punishment system. So, how can we help you? What can we do to to stand beside you and to support your cause and the concern, cause and concern of so many.
2: Well, <clears throat> it was <clears throat> we were asked to lend our voice and our voice. I mean, we're right here. We're we're available at twenty four seven. We're surrounded about surrounded by people that are being incarcerated that are incarcerated and on Saturday nights. We go out and minister to, and my wife fixes fixes a meal that we feed a lot of them uh, something that comes out of the meal comes out of Golden Corral. And a lot of the people that we minister to uh, in the, the hook, like uh, Maya had just suggested, uh, many of them are either on probation or getting ready or just got out of jail or in jail or just separated from their family members. But our voice, our participation, our finances, our very existence, whatever it takes for for us to enhance Maya's ability to, to release or get things going, we will be willing to do that. We were in a parade here. Uh, they asked us to speak at a parade or gathering prior to the uh, George Foreman's uh, march. Uh, we were involved in that as well. And we wasn't able to march up and down the street because of our health, our energy. it's not the way it, is, uh, way it was when we were 16 and 17, but we were able well, to- I, limit- I, I certainly
1: can't tell that. <laughs> I, I not tell
2: that at all, like y'all got a 16, 17-year-old love and a 16, 17-year-old energy. Yes, but but any way that we can possibly help her and help the situation, because good will never uh, be substantiated until we've exalt it. Evil will never succeed good, and evil, as you can see in the previous administration, it will never last and it's only lasts for a short period of time. And this evil that we have in the correction system is the same, it need to be corrected from the top to the bottom. And this yes. is what Maya is doing and we are more than happy to help, be it finances, be our voice in any way possible.
1: And, and Mrs.
2: Wayne? Um, one of the things that we,
3: we really need to get on top of, we talk, they talk, the medical system talks about people with underlying conditions and not hopping right back on Anthony, but because this has not been brought out today, Anthony has been diagnosed and I think it was the end of 2018 uh, with um uh, Malaysia. Right. Malaysia. is a non curable debilitating uh, disease wherein there is softening of his spinal cord and bleeding and there is really nothing that can be done about it, and it's treated with um, opioids, more or less, and he could not get those opioids in jail. He could not get a whole lot of the things that he needed while he was in jail, and he was really suffering. When we look at God and know that when we read about the condition of what My Malaysia is, all we could do is pray. I'm not saying that he's getting these opioids now. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what the doctors are giving him, but the fact that he's not freezing every day in the jail, the fact Mm -hmm. that our trust in God, his trust in God has gotten him home and he seems to be really improving to a degree. when, when we look at over uh, underlying conditions, how many of these people in the jail have really, truly severe underlying conditions yes. and they are still locked up and people dying around them every day, yes. mm. every day. And there has to be a level of compassion from somebody somewhere that goes beyond what we hear and see. And this is one of the reasons that we have had to be an advocate for our son. And all of us have people, or at least people that have people in jail. I was calling the mm. jail. I was mm. calling the medical department. I was calling the people over the medical department. I was calling the head of the uh, uh, the. Facilities, the head of corrections, whomever I could have, hear me in reference to my son, I was calling. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of thing that people have to do for their own loved ones. You have to Uh, get out. You have to make yourself available for him, them, whomever it is.
1: And Mr. and Mrs. Swain, thank you for your... Uh, teaching us about advocacy, um, but also about compassion. The fact that you're advocating not only on behalf of your son, Anthony Swain Jr., but on behalf of so many sons and daughters and children and people who are caught up in the criminal uh, legal system. So I'm going to turn to the uh, angel uh, with wings. <laughs> with wings, um, That is not a requirement for admission to Harvard Law School or to pass a car. <laughs> but apparently to serve as an attorney for for the Swains, you must have wings. So uh, uh, Madam Attorney Ragsdale, if you could just leave us with um, with a word of, of hope and a word of advocacy with respect to cash bail system. And lastly, tell us specifically, how can we support the Swains and how can we support your work? Give us an, an, an email or website, some way for people to write a check for people to send um, a word of support and uh, get behind the work that you're doing.
4: Thanks so much for having me on here and for having this platform where the Swains could speak, um, where I could speak. It's just, it's awesome that Harvard is using its resources in this way. Um, I think what the, what Mr. Swain said about, and Mrs. Swain as well, about being able to be a voice, being able to use your voice um, in order to advocate um, on these types of platforms is so important. Um, and I would say that, you know, just in general, I think most communities have at least an organization, at least one organization that's working on criminal justice issues. Um, and so I think that for me, what I've really realized over the last year and a half is it's just so important to find those organizations and figure out how to support them. Those organizations are the ones that are connected to, you know, those are organizations are the ones that you can get involved in programs. Like for example, court watching to learn more about the system or those organizations are the ones that are creating demand letters, asking for people to be released from the system or those organizations are the ones that are holding public hearings in order to, um, you know in order to give people a space so that people can talk to their elected officials and talk to them about why their loved ones need to come home or why people in their community don't deserve to be incarcerated so i think that joining an organization that is doing this kind of work is absolutely vital because these organizations are powerful based on the number of people who are actually part of them who are supporting them who are who are um i guess being organized and who are advocating through these kinds of vehicles. So I would say that that's the, to me, that, that feels like the, the biggest thing. Um, I, in terms of the organization that I'm part of, the website is www.dreamdefenders.org. Um, I'm also involved in another organization that is specifically the membership basis, people whose loved ones are currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. The website for that is beyondthebars.info. And so, you know, either one of those places are places where you can find more information. They're Miami-specific or Florida-specific, but again, there's similar organizations throughout the country in every community um, working on these kinds of things.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. We are so honored to have Attorney uh, Ragsdale and... Anthony and Connie Swain here on the Avant Guardian podcast. When you hear people who are willing to not only tell their story, but help us as Americans change our story and the stories that we tell about people behind bars and the stories that we tell about our democracy, we're so thankful for your willingness to speak up, to speak out, to stand up and stand against injustice and stand for the well over 4 million people under criminal supervision in this country. 2.2 million people behind uh, bars, Uh, the millions of families affected by this pandemic of mass incarceration amidst this pandemic of COVID-19. We are deeply, deeply, deeply uh, grateful for you being here. And we simply want to say to our listeners and viewers of the Avant Guardian podcast of the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice, at the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. We're grateful for your presence, for your support of this work. We encourage you to follow the work of the Trotter Collaborative, which is a social justice collaborative at Harvard, bringing together students, activists, advocates, faculty, and staff all across the country to make a difference in your communities. We ask that you follow that work at Trotter underscore Harvard. And we ask that you support the work Please uh, subscribe and give us a five-star rating in terms of the Avant Guardian podcast. And again, we thank you for your support. Thank you for following our work. And we encourage you to participate in the work. And please, please, please uh, support the organizations lifted up on this program.